Section 17 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. Italy, 1382-1453, Part 1. The history of Italy at the close of the 14th and during the 15th centuries presents the same complications and difficulties as before. It is still the history of divided states struggling for their own advancement, and yet the feuds and friendships of state with state renders it impossible to study one without the others, or to regard them as completely separate entities. A few general lines may perhaps be laid down to explain in some degree the course of events, and to act as guiding threads through the maze of Italian politics. The popes had now returned to the states of the church, but with their authority considerably reduced by absence, and in constant difficulty with their Roman subjects at home, whilst anti-popes and the claims of the great councils were occupying them abroad. Thus the pope was ready to side with any faction in Italy which would repudiate his rival or help him to assert his temporal power to which he more particularly devoted his energies. Milan, until 1447, was in the powerful hands of the Visconti, who had established so formidable a duchy in Lombardy that they might aspire, with some hope of success, to rule over all northern Italy. Here we read of extraordinary cunning and cruelty in member after member of this hated family, of intrigues with other cities, of absorption of smaller towns, the leading motive throughout being desire for territorial aggrandizement and fear of any other state growing in power, above all Venice, the only dangerous rival to their dominion in the north. Venice was now becoming more and more of an Italian power, owing to the growth of her territory on the mainland, which brought her into rivalry with Milan and also Florence, each state being bitterly jealous of the other. Genoa, the old rival of Venice, could never really equal her in commerce after the war of Chioggia, though her jealousy still glowed hotly. She was in subjection for the most part either to France or to Milan, who competed with her for supremacy, and against whom she struggled with occasional success. In 1411 she had freed herself from French rule only to acknowledge the supremacy of Milan. From the latter she obtained liberty for a short period in 1435. Of all these states, Florence had perhaps the most important history, but it was a history of gradual subjection and loss of liberty. At the close of the 14th century, the struggle between the lower and upper classes ended in the complete victory of an oligarchy under the Albizzi, which led in its turn to the more valid, though more despotic authority of the Medici family, won for it in our period by the celebrated Cosimo. The external relations of Florence were chiefly determined by the desire for expansion and by jealousy of Venice and Milan. Under Cosimo de' Medici, a sort of balance of power policy was adopted, which enabled Florence to more than hold her own in the struggle for wealth and importance. 
Another feature peculiarly characteristic of Italian history was the influence and power of the great condottieri. Such generals as Braccio, Sforza, Piccinino were fully as important as dukes of Milan or kings of Naples. All sides fought with paid armies, and success depended on ability to pay these troops and on the good understanding which could be established with their leaders. These chiefs had become more than mere commanders of great companies. In many cases, they were rewarded with castles and lands, became great feudal lords, and competed for power with the old territorial princes. The way in which the condottieri fought first for one party, then for another, adds a further complication to the study of this perplexing but fascinating period. Events in Naples have been alluded to from time to time in connection with other matters, but for the sake of clearness it may be useful to repeat them shortly in one consecutive narrative. Charles III, 1382 to 1386, it will be remembered, had succeeded in establishing himself on the throne of Naples and had put to death Queen Joanna I, whose adopted heir, Louis of Anjou had failed to enforce his claims. Charles, not content with one kingdom, turned his ambitions to Hungary, where the elder branch of his house had held sway. The death of Louis the Great left the land to his daughter Maria, who was betrothed to Sigismund, younger brother of the Emperor Wenzel. The Queen Dowager Elizabeth was regent. A party of Hungarian barons, discontented with this arrangement, offered the throne to Charles. He hastened to Hungary and was actually crowned, apparently with the consent of Elizabeth and her daughter, who attended the ceremony, but showed signs of extreme grief and wept bitterly. Despite the kind treatment which they received from the new king, they never really abandoned their claims, and Elizabeth contrived the murder of the unsuspecting monarch, 1386. The assassination of Charles left the throne of Naples once more a prey to the struggles of rival claimants. Ladislas, son of the late king, was eventually successful in holding his own against a second Louis of Anjou, 1386 to 1414. But the claims of the latter were not renounced and remained a weapon ready to the hand of anyone who wished to oppose the young Neapolitan. Ladislas was a man certain to have enemies. Brave, energetic, and spirited, he had the most soaring ambition, which carried his wishes beyond Italy to the very imperial crown itself. His banners flaunted the proud device, Aut Caesar, Aut Nihil. As a step in his desired career of aggrandizement, he seized the states of the church, nominally as the friend of the pope. The city of Florence determined to oppose him, and once more turned to the Angevin candidate, who was proclaimed king by the Council of Pisa, and came in person to maintain his rights. Despite a complete victory at Rocca Seca, 1411, Louis of Anjou, owing to delay and following up his success, gained nothing from the battle. Ladislas himself said, The first day after my defeat... My kingdom and my person were both in the power of the enemy. The second day, my person was safe, but they could still, if they wished, have become masters of my kingdom. The third day, 
all fruit of the victory was lost. There was no more trouble from this quarter, and not many years later, Louis died at Rome. Ladislas himself had but three more years to live, years chiefly occupied in quarrels with John the Twenty-Third, who was driven from Rome. His death in 1414 was followed by the expulsion of all Neapolitans from the papal capital. Competition now took a new form. There were rivals, not for the throne, but for the hand of the queen. Joanna II, sister of Ladislas, though far from being an attractive character, had no lack of suitors. The Count of La Marche was eventually accepted in the hope of conciliating France, but the marriage was a failure from every point of view, and after long quarrels, ending in her husband's flight, Joanna reigned alone, 1414-1435. The third Louis of Anjou now came forward with his claims in 1420 and was privately egged on by Pope Martin V. He soon found, however, that more than the queen were against him. Joanna had no children, and indignant at Louis being forced upon her as her successor, determined to bring a new actor on the scene in the person of Alfonso V, King of Aragon and Sicily. She adopted him as her heir, and he was only too eager to acquiesce in a plan which would once more unite the two Sicilies. Thus a long rivalry began between Angevin and Aragonese. Joanna soon repented of her choice, as Alfonso was in every way too masterful. She revoked her adoption, and making Louis of Anjou, Duke of Calabria, proclaimed him as her heir. He was a quiet and easy-going prince who went to Calabria as he was ordered and died there just before his adopted mother. Joanna had still time for another adoption, and chose, last of all, René of Provence, a younger brother of Louis, well known to us as father of Margaret of Anjou, wife of our own Henry VI, 1434. A year later, the queen herself departed this life and left her two adopted sons to dispute the succession. Alfonso was captured in the struggle and carried off as prisoner to Milan. But here his attractive personality won over the Duke Filippo Visconti, who set him free and gave him help to continue the war. Poor help, as we now know, since he was at the moment secretly assisting the other side, for it suited him well to have his neighbors flying at each other's throats and providing occupation for the dangerous condottieri. The long struggle ended at last in the establishment on the throne of Alfonso, 1435 to 1458, a man of considerable ability as well as of a generosity so universal as to win him the title of magnanimous, and for a short time, Naples and Sicily were united under the same ruler. René could never be king, but Eugenius IV gave him a grand coronation, which possibly did something to atone for his disappointment. The two Sicilies were still being happily and quietly governed by Alfonso in 1453. One result of the expedition made to Italy by the Emperor Henry VII is not likely to be forgotten. In 1312, he appointed Matteo Visconti imperial vicar in the city of Milan, and so established the ascendancy of that dynasty, 
whose name was to become the most feared and most hated in northern Italy. Under the descendants of Matteo, Milanese rule began to grow apace. In 1339, Bergamo, Brescia, Cremona, Lodi, Piacenza, Vercelli, and Novara owed her sway. Parma, Tortona, Alessandria, and Asti were added a few years later, and Giovanni Visconti, the warlike Archbishop of Milan, overstepped the borders of Lombardy by forcing the cession of Bologna in 1350 and the submission of Genoa in 1353. Milan had become the greatest power in Lombardy, had alarmed Florence and the other Tuscan cities, and excited the hostility of the Pope by attacks on the states of the Church. In 1354 the death of the Archbishop had left these extensive domains to be divided between three of his nephews, Matteo, Bernabo, and Galeazzo Visconti. Matteo, however, was soon got out of the way by his brothers who were utterly unscrupulous, and his death was greeted with pleasure by the Milanese, who had already learned enough of his vicious character. They had gained little. In Bernabo and Galeazzo, 1355 to 1378, all the worst features of the Visconti were displayed. The history of this family is almost unbelievable. It is hard to realize that such monsters can ever have existed or have been allowed to live. One after another showed the same extraordinary combination of crafty ability, unflinching determination, a cold-blooded cruelty which defies description, coupled with the most despicable personal cowardice. It was not till a little later in John Galeazzo that we find these characteristics in their most exaggerated form, but Bernabo and Galeazzo were unmistakable Visconti. It was they who issued the appalling decree which sentenced criminals to forty days' torture before their execution. It was Bernabo who flung a peasant to his hounds for having killed a hare, and forced a papal messenger to eat in his presence the parchment cord and leaden seal of the bull of excommunication which he had brought. It was Bernabo again who fell into such abject terror when the plague was in his capital that he hid in a house in the forest, saw no one, and surrounded it with a barricade to pass which entailed instant death. This tyrannous coward soon reaped the reward of his crimes. In 1378 his brother died, leaving his share of Milanese territory to his son, John Galeazzo, 1378-1402, the ablest and the wickedest of this able and wicked stock. The new ruler did not strike at once. On the contrary, he feigned a humility and a piety which completely misled his uncle, and then invited him to meet him on his way to a place of pilgrimage, 1385. Bernabo came all unsuspecting, only to be seized, flung into prison despite his entreaties, and promptly poisoned. John Galeazzo, now the head of an undivided dominion, threw off the mask, boldly grasped at power, and entered on a career which brought terror to all other Italian rulers, established the supremacy of Milan, and reduced his own subjects to a dull despair, 
which robbed them of all power to resist the oppression, cruelty, and terror under which they groaned. The ambition of the new tyrant was to found a kingdom of northern Italy, and he all but achieved his aim. Many territories had been recently lost, and these he set to work to win back with additions. The conquest of Verona and the destruction of the family of della Scala opened the way both to Padua and Venice. Fearing for themselves and mindful of their old quarrel with the house of Carrara in Padua, the Venetians helped Milan for the time, and Padua was forced to surrender. Supreme in Lombardy, John Galeazzo now threatened Tuscany, took possession of Pisa, Siena, and Perugia, and in 1395 forced Wenzel, king of the Romans, to confer Milan and his other possessions upon him as an hereditary duchy. Never was the rise of any family so rapid and apparently so secure as that of the Visconti. Wealth and power cover a multitude of sins, and foreign courts were not ashamed to form marriage alliances with this race of blood-stained tyrants. A daughter of Bernabo had been married to Leopold of Habsburg, the Leopold who fell later on the field of Zempach. A sister of John Galeazzo to the English prince, Lionel, Duke of Clarence, and the Duke himself to Isabella of France, a country which he again tried to conciliate later by wedding his own daughter, Valentine, to Louis of Orleans, the duke who was afterwards murdered. The wedding feast which was given in honor of the Duke of Clarence has been recorded and remains as an illustration of the enormous wealth of the Visconti and the lavish profusion of those days. Eighteen courses appeared at the magnificent banquet. Each course was heralded by costly presents to the wedded pair, sporting dogs of all kinds with costly collars, war horses royally caparisoned, armor adorned with silver and gold, and many ornaments and precious stones. Even the food was gilded, and the table groaned beneath the weight of gilded stags, hares, pies, and game of every imaginable variety, to say nothing of wine, fruit, sweetmeats, no European monarch could possibly have spent more, even had he wished, and one doubts if anyone could have eaten so much. John Galeazzo suffered one reverse to his arms, the history of which is full of interest. After Milan had annexed Padua in 1388, Francesco Carrara, the younger, who had been imprisoned at Asti, escaped with his wife and determined to leave no stone unturned for the recovery of his possessions. They crossed the Montseigneur in snow and first sought help in vain at Avignon. Then by ship they returned to Italy, but his young wife, Tarea, ill at the time, suffered such agonies from seasickness that they endeavored again to advance by land. Through hostile territories they walked in hourly fear of capture, with scarcely any food, sleeping where they dared in the woods, in barns or in ruined churches. Tadea, supported by her husband, and scarcely able to put one foot before the other. They had many disappointments. At Pisa they hoped for shelter, but the Visconti's hand was there also and they could not stay, though Francesco did get a horse for his wife and refreshments for the journey. Florence received them, but dared not give open help, 
and the brave young Carrara set out once more to his kinsman, the Duke of Bavaria, a journey filled with sufferings and adventures. At last, with a handful of men and the promise of more to follow, he returned to Italy and advanced on Padua, where the Milanese had a strong garrison. His numbers were too few to attack the town, but Francesco knew that the river was passable and the water low. With a few companions they crept up the riverbed, scaled the wall, and entered the town, whilst the attention of the defenders was distracted by shouts of peasants all round who were devoted to Francesco, and whom he had instructed to do this in order to make the garrison believe that they were attacked by a large force. The stratagem was successful, and the town was captured by the heroic little band. More troops from Bavaria following enabled Francesco to establish himself firmly in Padua and to force John Galeazzo to agree to terms. 1392. End of section 17.